You are listening to a podcast by Spring Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Spring Hill Church is called to reach everyday people with God's grace, His unconditional love, and the life-changing power of His Word. Thanks for listening, and if you would like more information, you can visit us online at springhill.cc. All right, everyone. Well, let's pray and let's get into the Word tonight. You ready? Ready. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace. Father, I thank you for, again, this opportunity that we have to gather in your presence, Lord. I thank you that there is no time nor distance in the realm of the Spirit. And Father, I thank you that even though physically we may be in different places, I thank you that the same Holy Spirit that's here with me is there with them, and the anointing is present, Father. And so we thank you, Lord to receive from that tonight, from that anointing. And Father, I believe in Jesus' name that the Spirit of God, who is our teacher, will bring revelation and insight. And Lord, we believe to receive everything that you have for us tonight. Father, I give you permission to speak through my voice, my thoughts, and to convey and to communicate exactly what what you desire to speak to our hearts tonight. Father, we purpose to have hearing ears and open hearts to receive. And Father, we just will be mindful to be not just hearers of the word, but we'll be doers of it as well. And Father, we thank you and praise you for all of this in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, as I said to you last week, we're kind of piggybacking this little uh, addendum to our Better Covenant series that we've been talking about. If we're going to attach it to that, this is week number nine in that series called A Better Covenant. And I've, I felt led to uh, attach this to it so that we can have a clear understanding that, yes, Jesus is the one that brought about through his death, burial, and resurrection, the better covenant. But I wanted us to have a little better understanding of what Jesus is doing now. We all know that he, of course, died on the cross, was buried and raised from the dead. And we know that uh, 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended to heaven and he's been there ever since. And so uh, I want us to, to know what was he doing or what is he doing and what has he been doing all of this time since he went there. And so that's what we're looking at. Um, and I gave you that uh, that Jesus, when he ascended, it, he commenced and began a new phase of his ministry. And there are four aspects of that ministry. And I gave you these last week, but I, let me give them to you again. And we're looking at each one of these. So number one, Jesus is our mediator. We talked about what that means. I'll, I'll go into that just a little bit for review in just a second. Number two, we talked about Jesus, our advocate. We touched on that. I'm going to go into it in a little more detail tonight. Then number three, the Bible says that Jesus is our heavenly intercessor. He's praying for us. So we need to know what is he praying and what, it, what is he praying about? Number four, it, we know that Jesus is our great high priest. Okay, so we're going to look at, uh, uh, as I said, we've covered number one, Jesus, our mediator. And then we're going to look at the rest of these. And um, uh, contrary to what Alan might think, I'm going to do my very best to get through 10 pages tonight. And so, you know, there's always one in the crowd that that doesn't think I can do it. So, <laughs> but anyway, 
we said last week that Jesus is our mediator. And we talked about from 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, Paul came right out and he said, and I'm reading from the Good News Bible, it says this, for there is one God and there is one who, who brings God and humans together, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And that's what a mediator does, that, that the mediator brings two parties together so that the two parties can come into uh, agreement. You know, it, we might understand it in uh, our day as to, you know, when there are union disputes, at, at, you know, say uh, with the union fighting against management, that very often the government or somebody, depending on the size of what's going on, will bring in a mediator to settle the dispute. And so Jesus was brought in as our mediator to settle the dispute between man and God once and for all. And of course, he did that through his death, burial, and resurrection, and he brought God to man and man to God. I said this to you last week, Jesus came to earth to represent God to man, and then he came to tell us about God, tell us the good news, but now he has gone to heaven to represent man before God. So it's kind of a flip-flop. His ministry has flip-flopped in a little bit in, in the sense that he came representing God to a fallen uh, humanity, a lost people, but now he has gone to heaven and he's representing us before the Father. So that is what a mediator does, and so I'm thankful for that. Now, let me just say this to you. There, this one ministry that Jesus does, the mediator ministry, is for sinners, okay? These are for lost people. Lost people need a mediator. We basically need the other three. So the other three ministries that Jesus is doing are for believers or Christians. And so once you receive Jesus as the mediator, so to speak, and he's brought you to God, you're now in relationship with your heavenly father. And so the other three now come into play. So if you want to, turn in your Bible with me to the book of Job in the Old Testament, Job chapter 1, and I want to read a portion of Scripture out of there. We're going to talk for a little bit tonight about Jesus, our advocate. I described to you a little bit about what an advocate does last week, but I want to go into some more detail on that and maybe shed some light on some things. But in Job chapter 1, uh, verses 6 through 12. Let me read this, and, and let, me, let me just lay a little groundwork first. If you're not familiar with the book of Job, the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. It was written first, even before Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, but your Bible, our modern Bibles, are not in chronological order. They're in order by type of book that they are, and they're organized this way, but uh, the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible, and Job lived at about the same time that Abraham lived in the earth. The only uh, difference was Abraham was over in the western part of that section of the Middle East, and Uz, which is the land that, that Job was from, was over in the eastern part. Now, one of the things that you need to understand, and, and this will help just add some context to this, without going into too much detail, and that is this. Job did not have a direct relationship with God. Abraham did. If you'll recall, Abraham was called out by God to become his covenant partner, and of course, that's laid the groundwork for this whole study, A Better Covenant. 
But Job did not have a covenant with God. He was not part of God's covenant family. And so everything he learned and heard about God came secondhand. It came from people that had been around Abraham and his family and so forth and had heard about God. Now, just because he was getting all of this information about God secondhand does not mean he loved God any less. But what it means is his revelation of who God is and was was very, very limited. He did not have the scope of a, a, a relationship, if you will, that Abraham had. You know, Abraham walked and talked with God. Job did not necessarily have that, that particular benefit just simply because he was not part of that original covenant family. So I say that, so as we're reading these things and we, we're just glancing at this book of Job for a moment, to help you put some things in context, okay? Now, by the way, Job was extremely, extremely wealthy. You can read there in the first five verses of the book. I won't take time to read it tonight, but it lists all of the assets that Job had. He had a lot of livestock. He had a huge ranch that was able to accommodate. You know, uh, there are people in modern day that have looked at all the, the list of the livestock that Job had there and estimated the size of the ranch that it would take to facilitate and to take care of that much livestock. And it was literally in the hundreds of thousands of acres that would be required. So Job's ranch was very big, if you will. I don't know if he called it a ranch, but anyway. So he did very well, and it was because God had blessed him. Okay, now look at verse six. Now there was a day when the sons of God and this is a reference to angels, okay, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and says, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have, have increased in the land, but now stretch out, literally in the Hebrew, that means retract, take your hand off of him and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, and that just simply means look, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now I want to break these scriptures down, answer some questions, because these, uh, you know, these verses cause a lot of theological issues for people. So let's, let's unravel this for just a moment. Now, Going back to verse six, now there was a day when the sons of God, meaning the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Satan does have access to heaven and will until halfway, the halfway point through the tribulation period. There are some things that happen through the tribulation period. His access to the throne room of God gets cut off. But if you'll look over, um, leave your marker there in Job 1 and uh, go over with me to the book of Revelation chapter 12. 
Job 1, or Revelation chapter 12. And let's look at a verse there, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. And I want you to, to see something that happens. It says here in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now this is John the apostle talking, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. Now look at this. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Okay, now this is talking about Satan and his access to the throne room of God. And notice what he is called. He is called the accuser of the brethren. So what he does, his sole purpose in, in, in wanting and gaining access to the throne room of God is so that he can bring accusation against God's people. Notice this, it does not say he is the accuser of the sinners. It says he is the accuser of the brethren. Now, sinners are already accused and already judged because of sin. Sin has already been judged. But believers who have been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and receive Christ as their Savior um, are different in the sense of that judgment has been removed off of the sinner. I mean, off of the Christian, rather. Okay, so because of the blood of Jesus, we are no longer going to face that judgment because of sin, because of what Jesus did for us. Okay, but... The enemy, the, the adversary, the devil, what he does is he constantly roams the earth. Now, when I say the devil, I'm including all of his team with that. Um, you know, you got to be pretty up, pretty far up the food chain if to for the devil to mess with you personally. We know that he appeared to Jesus and tempted Jesus in the wilderness only to test and to prove, to find out was he really the son of God. But uh, outside of that, I would say most of us, uh, we don't rank personal attacks from the devil himself. But when we say, you know, the devil uh, brought this against, you know, what we're referring to is his whole organization, if you will. Now, how his organization works is this. He, he and demons and so forth learn about our lives watching our behavior and listening to what we say, watching our behavior and listening to what we say. And I don't know exactly how this works, but they make note of those things. So let's say, you know, I were to uh, sin and miss God somehow. Well, what those demons do is they make note of that. They provide that to their leadership and he takes those accusations before God and brings them before the heavenly father to try and accuse us of those sins. Okay. Now, let me give you some facts about the devil that you need to know. All right. And by the way, let me say this. Number one, God and the devil are in no way, shape or form on the same level. So don't ever get into your mind that the devil and God are, are fighting. Okay. Okay. They're, they're, they're nowhere near the same level. I mean, God just in a, a, a probably with a, a thought kicked Satan or Lucifer out of heaven when he rebelled against God. And, and listen, he didn't politely ask him to leave. Jesus said, 
I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning from the sky. In other words, God gave him the boot and he gave him to him good. All right. So let me give you these things. Understand this about the devil. Number one, he is a fallen angel. He's not even in the same class as God. He is not divine. He's not uh, part of the Trinity. He's not even related, so to speak. He was created by God, but he is a fallen angel. And by the way, just so you can know this, he's not in the same class that you are. You are, and I don't have time to prove this tonight, but human beings were created at a level above angelic beings. Okay. Why is that? Number one, we have free moral agency. We can choose to do what we want to do. Now, angels can choose, as we know by the rebellion that took place in heaven, but they don't have the right to choose. You and I have the right to choose. You know, you can choose to go to hell if you want to, and God has to let you. It breaks his heart for him to have to do that, but because he gave human beings that free moral agency, he gives us the right to make decisions that determine our spiritual and natural destiny, okay? But uh, uh, Satan is a fallen angel, all right? So here's the second thing. He is not omniscient, meaning he does not know everything. God is the only being in the universe that is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. He is full of all wisdom. Uh, you, you're just not going to find anybody smarter than God, okay? He is not, Satan is not omnipresent. He would like you to believe that he is, but he is not. In other words, he cannot be everywhere at the same time. Only God can be everywhere at the same time, all right? So, the way that the devil finds out his information, his intelligence network is, is pretty vast. But as far as him personally, he cannot be everywhere at the same time. Only God can do that. All right. Now, here's something else that you need to understand. And this will take us back to Job 1 in just a moment. Satan asks questions because he does not know the answer. Okay. Flip back with me to Job chapter 1, and let's look at those verses again. And uh, let's look at verse 9. And, you know, in verse 9, Satan poses a question to the Lord, and he says this to the Lord. So Satan answered the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Okay? So the reason I say that is Satan is asking God these questions because he's trying to probe to find information. So he asks questions because he does not know the answer. All right? Very clear that you understand that. God, however, asks questions because he wants you to know the answer. He already knows the answer. He's that's what makes him omni I mean, uh, yeah, omniscient. He 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 knows everything. Okay. Let me say it to you this way: God's never stopped one day and said, you know what? I've never thought of that. Okay. He you're he's not going to do that. 
He's he's he knows everything. So when God asks you a question, which I've had God pose questions to me before, it was to bring me to a point to see if I would be honest and open and admit the truth before him. Okay. So, you know, he might ask a question, you know, um, you know, just hypothetical. What did you do that for? Okay. Well, he knows why you did it. He wants you to know why you did it. All right. So God asks questions because he knows the answer and wants, and wants you to know that you don't know the answer. Okay. So that being said, Look at verse seven. God asked Satan the question. He said, from where do you come? Well, God knew where Satan came from, but I want you to look at Satan's answer. He said, so Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. You know, this reminds me and sounds exactly like what, what Peter said in first Peter chapter five, when he said, our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So what the devil is doing in his roaming to and fro in the earth is he's looking for open doors that he can get into people's lives and steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he's bent on. That's what his, his purpose in life is all about. That's what Jesus said. Okay, so understand that. All right, so God asked Satan those questions because there was something that Satan did not see. What was it? So notice what, uh, let's see. Um, go to verse eight. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Now, um, what it looks like here is that God threw Job under the bus, but that's not at what happened at all. In the original text, in the Hebrew language, here's what God actually said. And your, your Bible in the margin might, might have it written this way. The Lord actually said to Satan, have you set your heart on my servant Job? which the answer to that was, yes, he had. And what Job was doing is he came into God's presence to probe and see, was there any point of weakness that he could gain access into Job's life? Okay. So uh, again, verse nine, so Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Now this, this is Satan's perception. You've made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side. You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased. Stretch or Take your hand off of his life and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And then notice what God said in verse 12. Behold or look. Now here's the way people have interpreted this verse. Look, I'm giving you permission to do whatever you want to do to Job. And that's not what the Lord was saying. The Lord was stating something that already existed. It was already there. What was it? That uh, behold, all that he has is in your power, only lay not a hand on his person. Okay. So what was God telling Satan? Look, 
because of something Job has done, all of his stuff is open to you. All right. So what happened here? Well, there were two things that caused uh, this hole, if you will, this gap in the protection, the hedge of protection that was around Job's life. Now, by the way, if even in the new covenant, when you and I are walking with God and we're doing our very best to live a sin-free life, God will protect you, your family, and your possessions, and he will bless you and cause you to succeed, exactly like he was doing Job. But what caused this gap in, in Joel's, uh, Job, rather, his hedge of protection? Well, turn a couple pages over to Job chapter 3, and after Job's world began to collapse around him because of the effect of the enemy and what the devil was doing in his life, Job makes an interesting statement. He says this, for the thing I greatly feared has come upon me. In Job 3.25, he says, the thing I greatly feared has come upon me. So what was he saying? The, the thing, he had opened the door to the devil through this great fear he had in his life. Well, what was the great fear that he had in his life? Well, if you... Um, Look at and go back to chapter one and look at verse four. And it says, and his sons would go and feast in their houses and each on his appointed day and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And so it was when the days of feasting had run their course, look at this very carefully, that Job would send and sanctify them and would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did regularly. Now, what is the, on the surface? This looks, this looks good. Looks like Job's trying to do something to cover his kids. Well, I want you to know something. The problem here was his relationship with God and his love for God was not the motivation for all these sacrifices. He was doing these sacrifices not as an act of worship, but out of and by an act of fear trying to cover for his children. Okay, listen to me. Um, you will never win your children to the Lord doing stuff because you're afraid that, that they're lost and that they're going to end up in eternity away from God. No, the way that you win your children is you pray, you pray in faith, you believe God for people to be sent across their path, you love them unconditionally, and you minister to them. But you don't uh, do things in your relationship with God out of fear. That's the wrong heart motivation. And unfortunately, although that he thought he was doing a good thing, his fear was opening the door for the devil to be able to gain access and bring destruction into his life. The other thing that, that caused this hedge to have a gap in it was, and, and this is exposed later on, but Job has some extreme unforgiveness towards his three friends that come and visit him. You know, and it takes you a long time to read through all of the, the discussion, the debate that goes on between Job and his three friends, but by the time you get towards the end of the book in the, you know, the high 30s uh, chapter, 
what you find is Job is very angry at his friends. He's very upset with them because they misrepresented God to him. And uh, so what has to happen is Job has to forgive his friends. We see this in Job, the 42nd chapter in the 10th verse. Just make a note of that, Job 42.10. And it says, and the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. So apparently somewhere in all of that discourse, Job's heart got, uh, you know, out of whack concerning his friends were concerned and, or where his friends were concerned. And the, that continued to allow the enemy to be able to have access into his life and to be able to continue to bring destruction. But I love the fact, and listen, this is the character of God. The moment that Job repented, the moment that Job prayed for his friends, God was able to step in and immediately restore everything that the devil had taken from Job. He got twice as much property, twice as many assets, twice as many children. We don't know how many uh, you know, wives he ended up with, but anyway, that's beside the point. But my point is this. God was able to step in and bring restoration for Job. Now, the reason I tell you all of this is because I want you to understand that in this dispensation, since the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, things work a lot differently. Now, Satan still has access to the Father. He still can go into God's presence and bring accusation against believers, as we saw in Revelation chapter 12. But the difference is, in the throne room of God, we have representation there. The Bible says that we have an advocate that is present in God's throne. Now, let me give you a picture of what heaven somewhat looks like. I've never been there, but um, I'll tell you this. Around the main throne room where God God dwells, there is worship, there's praise, it's beauty and all of that. But directly in his throne room, it's more like a courtroom situation, okay? So kind of imagine that with me. And um, listen to this, 2 John 2, 1, or excuse me, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, John wrote this. He said, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So somehow in Jesus' ministry that he's fulfilling since he ascended to heaven, he has begun to represent believers before the Father God. So when the adversary shows up and he's got his list of things that you have done wrong, here's, here's why it's so important. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to say this to you before I go any further in this explanation. And I know it's hard, but you're going to have to make yourself do it. When you sin, Run straight to God with it. 
You're not going to feel like it. You're not going to want to. You're going to be ashamed. You're going to feel guilty. You're going to feel like a dog, but do yourself a favor. Go straight to God with that. Confess it to him. Ask him to forgive you and to cleanse you, and then begin the process of forgiving yourself. But here's why this is so important, not to let sin linger around. Because what happens is when you sin, the prosecuting attorney is right there waiting to bring an accusation against you. But when you have confessed that sin, your advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, rises and said, wait, 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 nope. That sin has already been paid for. He's already or she's already confessed it before the Father. So as far as I'm concerned and as far as the court of heaven is concerned, that sin no longer exists. This person is not guilty and their record has been expunged. It's no longer on the record. Okay. So what, what hap has happened there is that Jesus has pulled the rug out from underneath the devil and his accusations. So when you go and confess your sin you have pulled the rug out from underneath that accusation. You've allowed God to forgive you. And then the devil has nothing to work with in order to bring a case against you. Now, I said this to you last week, but I want to say it to you again. The courtroom is rigged in your favor. Your heavenly father is your judge. Your elder brother, the Lord Jesus, is your defense attorney. Okay. And the prosecuting attorney, the prosecutor, is no relation to any of us and is totally an outsider. So you need to know that because of what Jesus did for us with his blood and paying the price for our sin, the devil has no case against us. And so all of these accusations that he tries to bring before the Father uh, against us are null and void. Isn't that good news? Good news. All right. Praise God. All right. Let's get into this third ministry of Jesus. And that is, he is our intercessor. He is our intercessor. Look over with me to Hebrews chapter seven, please. Hebrews chapter seven. I know I covered a lot of material right then, but I hope you got it. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. It says this, Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. But he, Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The scripture says that he ever lives. Now, the reason that the scripture emphasizes this is to draw a difference between the intercessory ministry of the high priest under the old covenant and under Jesus' ministry in the new covenant. Here's the difference. Under the old covenant, the high priest could serve, but eventually he died. And then they'd have to bring another high priest and then another high priest and then another high priest. And again, uh, 
none of that fully satisfied the scales of justice, if you will. But when Jesus shed his blood and paid the price, was dead and was raised from the dead, he is alive and he lives forevermore, never needing to be replaced as our high priest. So that's why it says um, that because he continues forever, he has an unchangeable priesthood. All right. So the high priest was the one who, who went before God and interceded for man. But now we have a heavenly high priest that intercedes for us on a regular basis, okay? So the scripture says, again, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. What is intercession? You've, If you've been around the church, uh, you know, universal for a while, you've probably heard that term. But let me, let me give you a definition of what intercession means or to intercede, okay? And I'll repeat this a couple of times. To intercede means to act or interpose in behalf of, of someone who is in difficulty or trouble to, to act or interpose in behalf of someone in difficulty or trouble as by pleading or petition. Let me say that again, to act or interpose in behalf of someone in difficulty or trouble as by pleading or petition. You know, uh, uh, the reference that's, that the dictionary gave to me was, you know, somebody that might intercede for someone who is on death row before the governor or before the Supreme Court to try and plead their case to, to you know, get the, the judge to order a stay, okay? So, again, it's to act or interpose in behalf of someone in difficulty or trouble as by pleading or petition, okay? So what is... Jesus praying for. You know, you need to understand that Jesus is praying for you. Now, I don't have time to get into this in great detail tonight, but I'll, I'll mention this to you. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27 say that the Holy Spirit knows when we don't know how to pray as we ought, the Holy Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, what that means is the Holy Spirit, if we will give him permission, will pray through us what needs to be prayed in our situation, because sometimes we don't know how to pray as we ought. All right, so where does he get that from? Where does the Holy Spirit get that? Well, here's something that's really cool about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is just as much God as Jesus is God. So therefore, the Holy Spirit is in the presence of God and the Lord Jesus, who is seated at his right hand. And while Jesus is interceding for you to the Father, the Holy Spirit hears that. He is able to bring that to you. And if you will yield yourself to the Holy Spirit, he can pray through you in the Spirit what Jesus is uttering to the Father on your behalf. I know that sounds wild and it's a lot, and I'll get into it maybe some other time, but that's what he's he is. Jesus is praying for you, and the Bible says he ever lives to make intercession. Now, 
you know, I know Jesus isn't literally seated at God's right hand, whispering in his ear all the time, but you got to understand that Jesus has a connection with the father, just like you have a connection with the father, just like you can pray in your car. You can pray in your shower. You can pray wherever you are. Jesus has that same ability. Okay. All right. Now, so what is Jesus praying for you? Here's number one. He is praying for you that you are not sifted like wheat. He's praying that you are not sifted like wheat. Now, this comes from, if you want to just make a note, Luke chapter 22, verse 31, where Jesus went to Peter and he said, Peter, the devil is wanting to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Okay. So what does sifting do? Sifting separates. So what, what the devil is trying to do is to get involved. And in that situation, he was trying to bring division into the disciples. And so what Jesus did is he prayed and that, that you would not be sifted and separated like wheat. In other words, separated from him, separated from the Holy Spirit, drawn away. He's praying for you that you would not be sifted like wheat. In the very next verse, in Luke 22, verse 32, Jesus said this, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So he said, Peter, the devil's wanting to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So the second thing Jesus is praying for you is that your faith would not fail. That's good news to me. So when I'm standing in faith and I'm believing God for healing or believing God for provision, or I'm believing God for whatever it is that I have need of, when I've gone to the word and I've prayed and I've, I'm standing in faith for that, Jesus is praying for me that my faith would not fail. Because here's the truth. If your faith does not fail, it will bring you to victory. Okay. All right. Here's number three. He is praying that you will be sanctified, meaning separated or consecrated or purified. He's praying that you will be sanctified through and by the word of God. He's praying that you will be sanctified through and by the word of God. The Amplified Bible of John 17, verse 17 this is, and I encourage you, read the whole 17th chapter of John. This is a prayer that Jesus prayed before he went to the cross and he was praying for his disciples. And the thing that you need to remind yourself as you're reading this prayer is that Jesus always got his prayers answered. Okay. So he prayed for you. He prayed for me in that prayer. And so he prayed that we, his disciples, would be sanctified through and by the word. So what does that mean? Jesus is praying that the word will work in us to cause us to be purified, cause us to be consecrated to him, sanctified. Sanctification just means separated for God, that there will be a difference in us from the world and that people, when they look at us, will see the Father. Okay, so he's praying that for you and for me. And then lastly, number four, he is praying 
that you and I will not be overtaken by the evil one. That's also from John 17. He is praying that you and I are not overtaken by the evil one. Okay. All right. So let's go to ministry number four. Let's talk about Jesus, our high priest. Now I've got to cover about five pages in 10 minutes if I'm going to prove Alan wrong. So uh, I'm going to do my very, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm just going to talk and let the Holy Ghost have his way. And if we have to pick it up here next week, we'll pick it up here next week. All right. Go over to Hebrews chapter three and verse one, Hebrews three, one. Hebrews 3.1 says this, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to underline a couple of words in there, if, if you can, in your Bible. Notice it says that he is, or consider the apostle. An apostle in the Greek language, means sent one. That's all the, the word apostle means. So the apostle Paul, he was sent by God to go minister to the Gentiles. The apostle Peter was sent to minister to the Jews originally and then to the Gentiles. Uh, so apostle means one who is sent. So it says this, consider the sent one and the high priest of our confession. Underline that word confession, if you will. Underline that word confession. Now we're going to talk more about that in just a second. Go over a page to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. It says this, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, look at what it says, let us hold fast our confession. Don't let it go. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Now, those verses are, are just action-packed, but the thing that I want you to see is Jesus, our great high priest, because he is that, let us hold fast our confession. And the, the, the latter part is saying this, Jesus faced every kind of temptation that you will face, but he didn't sin. But the good news is because he faced that temptation, he is aware and sensitive to what you face. So therefore, because of that, we can come boldly to the throne of grace, and can I be just very plain, say this, Lord, I need your help. And he will respond to that prayer and will help you in that time of temptation. Okay, but the thing that I want you to see as again, it says, seeing that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Go over to Hebrews, the eighth chapter, and look at verse one. Hebrews 8, 1. 
Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. And then, of course, what we've been basing this entire study on, look down at verse 6 in that same chapter. It says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Now, Jesus is referred to many things by the scriptures. The Bible calls him the, the good shepherd. The Bible calls him an apostle. The Bible calls him uh, our great high priest. Now, his ministry as our high priest is designed to do something really, really cool. All right. Now, I want to just cover this as quickly as I possibly can. All right. Now, in the scriptures, there are three types of confession. We said that Jesus, remember the scripture says, let us hold fast our confession because we have a great high priest who is seated at the right hand of God. So what? there are three types of confession in the scripture, in the New Testament. Number one, it's the confession of the Lordship of Jesus to be born again. The confession of the Lordship of Jesus to be born again, Romans 10, 10. If a man shall believe in his heart and say with his mouth that Jesus is Lord, he shall be saved. Okay? So confession of the Lordship of Jesus to be born again. Number two, we talked about this earlier, that when we sin, we can confess our sins to the Father. So number two is confession of one's sins to the Father as a believer. Now, I want to say this, and I, I've been in altar calls and services where the person who was given the altar call told people who were lost and needed to come to Christ in the service that they needed to come down and confess their sins in order to be saved. That is an impossibility, particularly the older you are. Now, if you're a little kid, you know, your life is fairly young. But listen, if you're if you're like me, uh, you know, where I'm 31. Uh, you know, wait, that's not funny. Anyway, uh, the more of your life that passes, the more sin there's going to be. And it's impossible for you to confess that. So that is not applicable to the sinner. That is applicable to the believer. The only sin or the only thing you need to confess when you are receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior is your need for Jesus and your need to be saved. Okay. Uh, the third type of confession is one that we practice a lot, and that is confession of the Word of God by faith. The confession of the Word of God by faith. Now, we have a tendency to become very, very narrow in our definition of confession of faith, but really, here's what it involves, okay? Your prayers are the confession of your mouth. Okay, so your prayers ought to line up with the Word of God. So when you are praying, you are making a confession of faith. You're praying the Word of God. Okay? Number two, your praise and your worship ought to be a confession of your mouth. Father, I thank you that you are good. 
and your mercy endures forever. Okay. And then, you know, when we take time to purposely speak and confess the word of God because we're standing in faith for something or we're building our capacity for faith. So we're speaking the word of God, like the healing scriptures or something of that nature. Okay. God loves, get this now, God loves to hear his word spoken back to him. Now, he's not on an ego trip. He doesn't need you to be patting him on the back and saying, add a boy. But there is something spiritual that happens when you and I speak God's word back to him. Okay. Um, go back with me to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament and look at Isaiah chapter 43. And Isaiah says something that's very powerful. Verse 25, Isaiah 43 and verse 25, Isaiah said this, of course, writing by the Holy Spirit. He said, I, even I, this, this is God speaking, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance, he says. Remembrance of what? Not your sins. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. What is God saying? Put him in remembrance of. Put him in remembrance of what his word says. Go to him and say, Father, your word says that Jesus took my infirmities, bore my sicknesses, carried my diseases, and with his stripes I'm healed. Father, your word says, but my God shall supply all of my need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. It's not that God has forgotten his word, but he needs you to say it. Okay, you're there in Isaiah. Go over a few pages to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, look at verse, uh, well, let's just go to verse 8. Isaiah 55, verse 8. It says this, Isaiah 55, verse 8, the Lord speaking again through Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It, it, what? It, his word, shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Now, I want to read verse 11 again. So shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth, it shall not return to me void. That word void there means absent of power, okay? So what God is saying is 
that my word that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void. How does God's word return back to him? Only if it is in the mouth of somebody who believes it. And when somebody who believes it returns it back to him, it is impossible for it to be void of power and therefore not accomplish what he said it would accomplish. Now, God's word is powerful all by itself. But when it's in the heart of a believer and a believer repeats it back to him and says, Father, this is what your word says, there is something supernatural that takes place and power gets released in that. And notice what he said, it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Okay, so God's word will prosper and will accomplish what he wants it to do when it gets into the mouth and the heart of a believer. And we repeat it back to him. Now, why is that so important? And I'm out of time, but let me take you back and let's look at Hebrews 3.1 again. Hebrews 3.1. Again, we're talking about Jesus, our high priest. What is he the high priest of? Well, Hebrews 3.1, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. I don't have time to, to get into the depth of it tonight. We'll have to go more into it next week. But here's what happens in heaven. When you pray the word of God, when you worship and praise with the word of God, when you speak the word of God, just speaking the word of God, your high priest takes those words, and he goes into the presence of the Father with them, just like the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with them. You remember how I told you that the high priest would have that censer that had the incense in it? Well, your, your words filled with the Word of God are what are the incense now? They're, they they go into the presence of the Father, and the Bible says that they become a sweet-smelling savor in His nostrils. The words, uh, the words of God on the in the heart and on the mouth of a believer are what come in before the presence of God and become something that He loves to be a part of, that He loves to receive, and it is pleasing to Him. And it is as if it was a sweet-smelling savor in his nostrils, okay? Now, there's more to that, but I got to stop, all right? And we'll pick up here next week. Thanks once again for tuning in to the Spring Hill Church podcast. We hope that you have been blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about the church, please feel free to visit us at springhill.cc.